0: Hello, and welcome to this time together. I'm so grateful you're here with me because what you're doing by being here is you're giving yourself a break. You're giving yourself a respite from all of the stuff out there that could otherwise fill your consciousness. And I know that when I take surveys of what's going on in the world, there's a lot to be worried about, a lot to be concerned about, a lot that stresses us out. And so when we take time to listen to something like this, we're taking a step back, our busy lives, we're taking a breath, we're getting back in our bodies, and we're giving ourselves time. And I think it's so important to give yourself that time, slow down, give yourself some space in your day outside of involvement in everything out there. There's a lot going on out there. And what I found as I've worked with so many best-selling authors over the years and had the privilege of being on the stage with Tony Robbins and Marion Williamson and Donnie Eden and all these other people is that they're Inner directed human beings they are definitely tuned into and know what's going on out there but their inspiration comes from in here so make sure you balance that out thereness with that in hereness. And then you fill your life with the inspiration, the wisdom and the love you find when you meditate, when you spend time in nature, when you move your body in dance or yoga or qigong, there are so many ways you have of nurturing yourself. And so you being here is giving yourself that nurturing moment. And I'm so grateful you're doing that for yourself. If you'd like to see a group of about 30 evidence based practices for taking those breaks, check out my book Mind to Matter. You can get it free at mind It's based on around 1000 a, a studies showing that our world material world outside of ourselves is influenced dramatically by what happens over here in our awareness when you live an interdirected life your outer life turns out very differently and you have a lot of power to shape your outer life. So check it out at mindtomatter.com. You get a free copy there, as well as several free meditations. The meditations are really powerful. They shift your brain function, shift your state, shift your mood, shift the way you feel, and they'll give you that break every day as you tune into that something greater than yourself and then live that inner directed life. So I'm so grateful you're making this. To do that, you're sharing this time with me. You're going to so appreciate the perspective of my guest today. Her name is Dr. Sherry Walling. She is a clinical psychologist, speaker, best-selling author, yoga teacher, and mental health advocate. Her company is called Zen Founder and it provides mental wellness resources to leaders and entrepreneurs as they navigate all the stuff of life. Her best-selling book is called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. And her new book is called, welcome book is called Touching Two Worlds. Her website is sherrywalling.com. I'll spell it for you, just make sure you get it it correct. So Sherry S-H-E-R-R-Y W-A-L-L-I-N-G. Sherrywalling.com. Sherry, it's such a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me, Dawson. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, and you've been threading this needle of learning to Find your resourcefulness in the midst of all the the chaos there. And and especially if you're an entrepreneur, if you are trying to carve your path in life, it can be very easy to get caught up in all that stuff. And then of course all your internal unresolved issues start to come to the surface. And I'm sure you found that in your work as a psychologist.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's so much pressure on leaders of all kinds to be externally focused and on top of all of that external stimulation. So lots of noise that all of us are responding to, but especially leaders. And so to find those still quiet practices that help us to distinguish the the signals from the noise, I think is, is really quite a superpower in an era where there's just a lot of loud going on.
0: <laughs> I love it. Distinguishing the signal from the noise and you know, those practices. What's the very first one you discovered in your own life that shifted you?
1: You know, I grew up in a pretty religious family. And one of the gifts of that tradition for me, it's not a tradition that I hold in the same way at this point in my life, but the gift of that tradition was this sort of practice of prayer, which was to sit quietly with your eyes closed and with this uh, sort of directed mind toward an interaction with the transcendent. And even though I again would not consider myself a religious person, and at least in the nature in which I grew up, that practice of stillness and internal focus also alleviating that kind of egoic focus on oneself, but really trying to connect with something bigger was really something so valuable to me that I carried forward from my childhood and and still practice to this day in various forms of of meditation or internal quiet moments.
0: Yeah, it's, it's real powerful practice to do that, not just in the morning when you wake up or in the evening before you go to bed, but just during the day to have those little quiet breaks to rebalance yourself.
1: Yeah, like lots of your listeners. I mean, my day is packed. Like I'm talking with people. All day as a clinical psychologist. I'm raising young children. So I'm on the move a lot in my day. And to just be able to steal away even three minutes of quiet breath really, really is a game changer for my ability to focus and be present.
0: I'm curious when you're working with clients, because those in the field of psychology, actually in in medicine as well, are dealing with people who are suffering. And I know that the rates of burnout are high in these professions. And people who are treating others are often really affected by just the suffering they're face to face with every day. How do you correct for that?
1: Well, I think that I am very careful to hold the suffering of the people who I'm conversing with. But a big part of my job is also a, sort of a, a resilience sleuth. Like I go looking for <laughs> oh,
0: I love that phrase, a resilience right? <laughs> sleuth. <laughs> I have a magnifying glass I'm looking.
1: <laughs> but I, so I do hear a lot of hard stories and painful experiences and events, but I don't see my clients as those who are suffering. I see them as people who are holding their own pain, who are on a quest to find more ease and more wholeness in their lives. And so that framing is actually really helpful for me because this the suffering, while we treat it very tenderly and with reverence, like we would any kind of injury, it's not really the focal point in a way.
0: So you see them as people who are dealing with those challenges rather than primarily as suffering people. So that, that's a very powerful distinction to see the person there. And uh, I know Oprah's book, "What Happened This Happened to You. So there's yeah. you to whom this happened. That's very powerful to remember because when people get all caught up in it, they forget that there is a you to whom this happened.
1: Yeah, I think that's been a really important shift, even in the language that mental health professionals have used probably in the last 20 years. But it, it used to be, and even the language sounds a little bit harsh, but it used to be that we would refer to people as schizophrenics or depressives. And so the the personhood was really very integrated in with the diagnosis. And thankfully, that is not the language that is used anymore. We talk about a person who is experiencing depression or a person who is living with schizophrenia. And those, the labels become just, you know, another piece of a descriptor of a human, but not the central description of who they are. I think that little nuance is really, really important.
0: Yeah, you know, I was struck when I was looking at the work of a psychologist called Robert Keegan, and he used to manage the Harvard Adult Development Project. And it's an amazing project. Harvard has been they began with a freshman class in 1938, and they've been studying the phases of adult development ever since. Mm -hmm. And he called that ability, what he calls making the subject-object shift, the single most important important personal growth tool that they found in their nearly century long project is that if you can make that shift to no longer be enmeshed in your reality like that, then you can move to transformation.
1: We also see the opposite, right? The, The most like deadly damaging moments we can experience as a human. So the deepest sort of throes of suicidal ideation, for example, are when we feel completely stuck in our momentary reality. So the moment becomes the eternity. We can't make the distinction between this is this experience that's my state in this moment in time versus this is the trait that is the reality for me for the rest of my life. So that kind of flexibility around, it's both time-oriented and self-oriented, that this is going to feel different, that I am going to feel different, that I am not defined by this moment. That's one of the most important protective factors in helping people to be resilient against really painful experiences.
0: And then how do you lead your clients to that realization?
1: Well we listen a lot for language, but sometimes we just we write out timelines. We talk about how things used to be different. Yeah. And we track change over time that happens just naturally but when we turn our attention towards it and intentionally focus on how things feel a little bit different as the moments go on then we can uh, i guess come to anticipate it and trust it a little bit more
0: yeah so you you begin by having the person remember that there's now but there was a time when they were resourceful perhaps or did yeah. have that most mastery in their life powerful yeah I think yeah. that
1: leads to a lot of self-compassion too, which is another of course really important part of adult development and resilience is a sense of being able to be empathetic toward your own self about this moment of pain. And to treat it tenderly, but not to feel that it will always be your reality. So when you can say, oh, like you're hurting, you're having a hard time right now, you're in the middle of a divorce, someone you love has died, you're not thriving in your job. When you can make those kinds of observations and then infuse some self-compassion, that feels very different than I'm failing. I'm not able to be successful. I've messed up all my relationships. So, seeing the temporary nature of the moment creates a little more compassion, which of course eases the whole system, eases the whole like self blame ego mechanism that all of us have in there somewhere.
0: Yeah. I so like to, in each segment, our conversation. Talk about people you've worked with who have had that happen to them, who maybe have come to that realization or developed that, and then how that changed them. So just share a couple of cases with us as we go along of people who have perhaps come to that realization. Oh, this is temporary. This is happening now. It's not who I am. And then how they transformed.
1: Yeah. A large part of the, the early body of my work was with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so in PTSD, people are... Some might call it stuck in a moment. And so I remember working with one woman who'd experienced a very, very, very painful, violent sexual assault when she was a teenager. And in a way, her development as a person really sort of stopped with that event. So I came to know her when she was in her 40s and was pregnant with a child. So the this sense of understanding herself as she was in her teen years, but then recognizing as her body changed with her pregnancy, this kind of new reality of how her body was interacting with the world and how her body was preparing to create life, which was um, for her something that she never could have imagined in the throes of her PTSD. So this contrast of before and now. And then also this sense of something that's emerging with the development and then eventual birth of this child felt like there's a there's a later coming as well. So there's a before, there's a now, there's a yet to be. And having her anchor in those different uh, phases of her own life, I think felt very powerful to her that she could safely look toward the future and be in the present without the before, without the past feeling so big and loud and overwhelming.
0: Yeah. Uh, There's a book by a doctor called Robert Scare and he, the title is When the Past is Always Present. He talks to trauma victims, people with PTSD, and how they are living in the past. They're just there in the past, they're immersed in the past, and they, they can't break out and see that past, present, and future that the pregnancy you're saying help her to see. And what led to your interest in working with people with PTSD?
1: You know, I always really liked kind of high-intensity challenges. <laughs> so if I was to be a physician, I think I'd be like an ER doctor. I really love of the very privileged experience of helping people to calm down and to feel safe. And that's a different kind of work than you might do in depression or in other areas of clinical psychology. So for me, being able to sit with someone and help them find the courage to face, to talk about, to think about, to feel into their most painful experiences just was like, that's what I want to (laughs) do. So I really came into it in graduate school as I was sort of meandering my way through the different components of clinical psychology. But I think, and I look back and reflect on my life, like it's always been sort of who I am, I always wanted to jump into the fray and see if we could sort of bring some calm organization.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so many of those people are caught up in That looping trauma, and without some kind of intervention, they just don't don't get better. And what I'm struck by with PTSD is it's one of the diagnoses that often gets worse over time. I know I uh, helped found uh, an organization that helps veterans with PTSD, Mm -hmm. and often their their wives are phoning us or emailing us, or their husbands are emailing us, or their daughters or their sons, and they're saying that mommy or daddy is getting worse over mm-hmm. time as that looping trauma of just being stuck there in that past reality just plays itself out and then of course those neural connections get stronger and they just can't escape so trauma that can make of-
1: your life very very small too. yeah and so it gets smaller and smaller and smaller it gets harder to interact with new people it gets harder to take risks it gets harder to leave the house eventually so it is something that can kind of fester within us and we do see that that increased challenge over time but thankfully you know people a lot of people get better right there is there's a tremendous amount of courage and potential for resilience and a variety of therapies that are really really helpful for folks.
0: Yeah, I was really intrigued when I read up on, on resilience for a book I was writing and uh, read the research showing that roughly two thirds of people experience post traumatic growth after a trauma, and only one third have get PTSD. And we see those numbers reflected in the uh, percentages of veterans coming back from Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan, that roughly 25%, 30%, according to the VA numbers, are going to go on to develop PTSD. Two thirds of them, three quarters of them, actually, I mean, they had all the same experiences, but they had the resilience to to cope. I'm just curious, what are the therapies you find most useful for that population?
1: So I have been trained with a lot of kind of cognitive-based therapies. When I was coming up in graduate school and then did a lot of my work within the VA at the National Center for PTSD, that was a lot of what we were working with at that time. So I would say that's kind of home-based for me. But I am increasingly interested in movement-based work. So whether that's somatic experiencing, integrating dance, theater, other forms of emotional expression that are more embodied, I think that's a pretty interesting and integrated kind of new, it's not really new, it's old, but it's sort of newly in the in the research literature. I also am really watching very closely what's developing with things like MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, specifically for PTSD, because of the way that utilizing a substance conjoint with psychotherapy really allows for that body-based experience, as well as the, the benefits of the therapeutic relationship.
0: Yeah, body-based, because then people are re-experiencing the traumatic event, but the their body. They aren't associating. They aren't going somewhere else. They aren't not there. I, I, I know I was doing grand rounds at Fort Hood a few mm-hmm. years back and the the psychologist who ran that, that particular program then said he recognizes what he calls the 1000 yard stare when somebody just leaves their body, and they're just not present, and they're not not able to be in their body. And if you're doing yoga, if you're doing movement, if you're doing experiencing, if you're doing something that keeps anchors in your body, diaphragmatic breathing, any one of those things can help you stay anchored, and then you re experience, but now I'm re experiencing in the body,
1: I feel like our body, you know, I'm sure you're so well acquainted with Bessel van der Kolk's work and the body keeps the score, but our our body is often the trigger too, especially for any kind of body based trauma. So in the case of an assault, there are all of these cues that remind the body of that experience and trigger for the body a sense of danger. So if we can help the body to feel soothed and calm and present in this moment, we can help prevent the body from kind of time traveling back to the moment of the trauma and then creating chaos in the mind and in the heart and then the whole physiological system. So that present focused body awareness is such a tricky thing for people for whom the body has become really unsafe. So I think that's where there, that's, there's so much interesting work happening. And as you're identifying breath work, cold plunge, yoga, all of these things that just help us practice being in our body can be wonderful, wonderful support systems for people who've experienced trauma. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know, the body can be a wonderful place to live. <laughs> We're going to a break right now, but please stay tuned. And for more on Sherry's work, go to her website, Sherry Walling com. Her new book is called Touching Two Worlds. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm Dawson Church, and I so appreciate the fact that you're giving yourself the space to listen to positive programming, to fill your consciousness, or inner world with positive messages. That is what it takes to shift internally. When we shift internally, we know that we can shift our external worlds as well. For more on the work of our guest today, Sherry Walling, go to her website, sherrywalling.com. I'll spell it out for you to make sure you have it correct. It's Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y, Walling, W-A-L-L-I-N-G. And her new book is called Touching two worlds. Terry, tell us about the new book and also about why you chose that theme and that title for it.
1: Yeah, so this book is really, oh, this is the work of my heart. It is part memoir, and then part my reflections as a psychologist. And it's based on a a series of losses that I experienced in my personal life. I lost my father to esophageal cancer and my brother to suicide in a very tight timeline. They died six months to the day from each other. And so I was kind of in the middle of my life, raising children, growing a career, running a business, doing, you know, all kinds of wonderful and amazing things. And then I had this really deep dive into the world of illness and grief and eventually death and then more grief. And so this book is really the reaction to those experiences. So it's called Touching Two Worlds to capture this experience of living in sort of two places at the same time, living in the land of loss while also being really present to a life that's very much alive. um, And my kind of need to be able to move quickly and fluidly between those two parts of my life at sort of the same time.
0: And how did you learn to make those those moves, those shits?
1: I think it's just what was required of me you know i would I would be with my dad in the in the in the cancer center sitting with him while he uh, was having chemo and just really present to the tenderness of his un you know his ending life the the sort of unpacking of his life and then you know an hour later I would be at a kid's play and cheering and celebrating this new life that's beginning and I'm in service to that as well as I'm in service to the other so it, it wasn't so much a choice Voice, as just a realization of what was happening so I think before I named it for myself it, I felt some of the strain that we sometimes associate with like the sandwich generation that generation of people who are caring for people at the end of their life and raising kids at the same time usually usually not always women in their sort of 40s 50s and that's a heavy weight to carry to hold both ends of the spectrum of life but once I realized what was happening, I could sort of picture myself almost swinging fluidly between these two realities and feeling less whiplash as I was just naming it for myself. Like, okay, I'm shifting here. I'm shifting there. I'm moving this way.
0: Yeah. Naming for yourself. And then also knowing that there are two worlds that equally happen uh, both of them equally. Yeah. yeah.
1: I feel like sometimes people think that they will get lost in grief You know, if they really let themselves go toward some of the heaviness of those feelings. And so some that I've interacted with have just been reticent to go there. And I think for me, it was so clear that the other world of aliveness was still accessible. It still existed, that I didn't fear going toward the grief, the death part, because I kind of had a had a trail back to the other side. I could move fluidly between them.
0: And that can be thought of too as a life skill, something you can learn to do. Maybe you don't do it naturally. Maybe it does seem scary to go to that weird place. And yet, once you have moved from one to the other a few times, you get the idea that it's possible and that you can do it and hold both realities.
1: You learn the route. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And so wh- where did that take you ultimately to learn to navigate those two worlds?
1: I mean, I think it's in a way difficult to answer that question because it sounds like there's been an arrival, right? That I'm yes. on the other side, that I'm it's taken me to healing. But I, I would say it's just taken me to a place of being comfortable in both places. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm over grief or have healed from it or am done with it. I would say that I will always be a, a daughter who has experienced bereavement. That's now part of me. It's part of the vernacular of how I introduce myself, how I see myself, who I am in the world, but the shift has become feeling comfortable and feeling almost embracing of those experiences because they are reflective of the love that I had for my family members that died. So, rather than it feeling pathological, like, oh no, this is a problem I need to treat. This is a thing I need to recover from. I got to get I got to get through this. I got to get done. I I feel sort of settled here, like, oh, I live in grief. And I also can live in joy
0: mm. and be
1: in both places at one time.
0: Yeah, there's a very interesting research on people who can hold multiple realities and inhabit them together. And that's what sort of flexible thinking has very different brain function from people who feel they have to be certain of how things are and be in a certain state. And things that are either black or white, but um, creative thinkers and people in flow are able to usually hold more than one reality at the same time, even mutually contradicting ones. So mm. that's interesting. And then also you should talk about burnout as well. What's your experience with working with people in burnout? Checking the time here. Actually, we may, we may talk about that in the, in the next segment, but um, I want to look at this because many people are, they they don't have necessarily PTSD, they don't have traumatic stress, but they're on the edge. I mean, they're really barely functioning in their, in their jobs, in their workplaces. The newest guy poll shows that about about two thirds of all American workers are either disengaged from their work or partially disengaged from their work. And so this whole phenomenon of burnout is something that is very widespread. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to get your your reflections on that. So we'll go to a break right now, come back and talk about burnout. Sherry's website is sherrywalling.com. And her new book is called touching two worlds. My name is Dawson Church, and I'll be right back after a break. Hello, and welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. And for more about sharing her work at our website, sherrywalling.com. Her new book is called touching two worlds. And I invite you into this consideration in your own life, other parts of your life where you perhaps feel as though it's this or it's that I'm in this role, or I'm in that role. This is really difficult. This is really easy. So, all of us as human beings have to deal with a whole group of experiences and parts of life, and often they are very different from each other. And then, being able to navigate them all gracefully is a very powerful experience and one that may take you a while to learn. But as Sherry is showing us, you can learn to move into both of them and experience them fully, and then have the ability to hold them together. So Sherry, for people who are on the edge, for people who feel that they are at the end of their rope, just go ahead and share your views on burnout and also maybe illustrate that with a case of somebody you've worked with who was in that space.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to explain maybe what burnout is, because I think it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. And it is really up part of popular culture like "Ah, I'm not going out tonight I'm kind of burnt out I think the usage of the word is helpful because it it normalizes that it's a very very common experience but burnout is also a formal diagnosis we have a a diagnostic category in the ICD-10 explains what burnout is and there are three kind of clusters of issues that people experience when they are living in burnout the first is what's most common I think uh, commonly observable when people are talking about burnout they're talking about physical and emotional exhaustion that sense of tiredness you kind of wake up tired. Your emotions are tired. Your heart is tired. Everything feels like you don't have a lot of energy or get up and go or oomph anymore. Then the second, uh, Part of burnout is a sense of cynicism and detachment, and this is where the things that we used to care about, we just don't care anymore. So I see this a lot in my work when entrepreneurs are kind of jaded, or maybe make fun of their customers, or they mock their team members. Like their their hearts are hardened in a way, and they can't find the sort of soft, joyful motivation that maybe used to guide their work. And then the last category of symptoms, or I guess, components. of burnout is the sense of diminished personal efficacy. So it doesn't matter how hard you're working. You're just this filter in your mind that says that it's all for nothing, that you're not accomplishing anything. You know, you could be winning awards and be incredibly successful in whatever role you're in, but you can't see that. All you see is what's not done, the to-do list that's piling up, uh, the things that are imperfect. And so it's quite a painful place to be when you think about it, right? You're tired, you're working really hard, but It doesn't feel like it's for any purpose and you have this sense that none of it matters and you don't care about it anyway. And Uh so with burnout, it's a pretty painful place to live and it can be pretty damaging to people's family lives, to their personal lives, to their internal sense of themselves and, of course, to their work life.
0: Yeah, sounds, that's a pretty devastating combination of those three things. And then how do you work with people at the verge of burnout and then share with us a, a case of somebody you worked with who was in that place was able to move through it to a new space in their lives?
1: Yeah, I really think about burnout as a repetitive stress injury, right? If you are typing away in the same way every day, you might get a repetitive stress injury or a carpal tunnel in your wrist. Burnout is very similar. It's using the same Parts of your brain structures over and over without much diversification. So, one of the best things for people to do who are approaching burnout is to mix up what the brain is doing. So, it's to step away from the screen, it's to get in their bodies, it's to really get serious about a hobby. Could be a yoga practice, could be running, could be something else that utilizes different brain circuitry so that you can essentially allow those parts of your brain that are getting exhausted to rest. When burnout gets really serious, sometimes people need to take Pretty significant time away from work, just like you would if you had a, a significant physical injury. So one of the the cases that I worked with with an entrepreneur who was really quite deep in burnout and had been working in a startup at a very fast pace for a very long time. And even though the startup was surviving and growing, it just wasn't thriving and, and growing at the speed that he wished it was. So he had all of this negative baggage around how he was thinking about his work, and just just kind of looked like someone who was run ragged, like didn't have much spark to him anymore. And so he started actually training in martial arts pretty seriously. So he readjusted his schedule so that he was spending an hour to two a day doing Taekwondo and really got away from the demands of his life and into his body in a way that was really absorbing. He couldn't be distracted. He couldn't think about work and do Taekwondo, like get hit in the face or kicked or something. So he had to really be all in on this absorbing activity. And the two things that I think were really helpful obviously the nature of his physical practice, but also the disruption in his schedule, the decision to give some time and energy to something that was really nourishing for him and to stop letting his business be his kind of primary or only focus in his day. And that seemed to help. So he took some time off, added in this hobby, adjusted his schedule and seemed to kind of find his spark. Other thing that's really important in burnout, both prevention and recovery is making sure that your work is very connected to the meaning behind your work. Burnout is also kind of an injury of sort of an existential crisis. It's where your work no longer feels meaningful to you. So really having a tight connection between the activities of your day how you spend your moments, and the things that are most meaningful to you is important. Sometimes the spreadsheets don't really seem to connect to your mission. So to make sure that you understand or are really connected to how the spreadsheets do in fact serve a larger purpose. And if you can't make that connection, maybe you give the spreadsheets to someone else and you do the thing that really helps you to come alive.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, One of the big business books in the 90s was entitled Start With Why. And so having your big why is is, is important. I know I have my big why at the top of my to do list. So the to do list is endless and can easily lead me to feel despairing, looking down at all four pages of it. But at the, at the top, there are there's the big why. And so if you contextualize what you're doing, that task you're doing in the frame of big why, then suddenly, you know why you're doing that, maybe repetitive, maybe boring, maybe difficult, maybe trivial task. And then you imbue them with meaning. I know too in my team. I often I, I make sure that we all all focus on that too, not just on the whats and what we have to do, but also on the big why. Please stay tuned. We'll go. We're going to a break right now for more on Sherry's work. Go to her website sherrywalling.com, and her book is called Touching Two Worlds. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I am your high energy host, Dawson Church. And I love sharing this material with you. I love to inspire you. I love to give you practical tools as well. And you will find that there are so many things you can do that can affect your well being. And then when you shift your consciousness, shift your emotions, shift your energy, that all kinds of things change around you as well. It's not just changing in here. It also changes dramatically out there. I was in a science panel this morning with two other scientists, two other researchers, and we're talking about the bonding angle of water, and how we have been measuring bonding angle of water before and after it's blessed by a healer. And that water changes its bonding angle between those two hydrogens, and that oxygen atom, literally, the matter of around you is changing as you shift and move into a healing space. So it's really worth doing all of these things you can draw into your toolbox of resources and then applying them in your life and shifting your awareness when you do that things shift outside of you as well. So please do use these tools, apply them in your life. And you'll find that as you shift internally, things start to shift externally as well. For more on Sherry's work, go to her website, sherrywalling.com. Find out more about her work there and her new book, Touching Two Worlds. So Sherry, you had a career in treating PTSD, and in mental health, and you were helping other people, you did research on this. And then suddenly, you were faced with this devastating pair of losses in your life, your father dying over time, your mother dying very suddenly, what did you do? How did you cope as you as you became the client?
1: Right. It is such a surreal let's talk about two worlds, right? It's a surreal shift to go from healer, from being on one side of the therapy relationship to the other side. And I think when my brother died, especially because that was really quite a traumatic loss um, to lose someone to suicide is to lose them violently. It's to lose them suddenly and to lose them in a way that is still pretty stigmatized. It's sort of difficult for people to know how to be helpful. I had very, very awkward conversations with people, even who are mental health professionals, who are my friends and colleagues. So I because of my training that I, I wasn't well inside. And so the process of then being able to move from therapist to therapized, <laughs> that's the word we use, but to someone that was able to say, I really need a sounding board, I really need some help. So I did go to therapy because I had to do all of the same things that everyone who's bereaved by suicide has to do, which is to wrestle with responsibility, with blame, with how did this happen? Shouldn't I have seen this coming? I do this for a living. How could you know, how could this happen on my watch kind of thing? And under underneath all of that wrestling, of course, to come to a place of recognizing that, um, all of my training certainly doesn't make me superhuman. And that when there's that kind of loss and that kind of illness, unfortunately, very little that can be done to resolutely change that story. You know, my brother was pretty determined to die by the time that he died. And coming to a place of accepting that there wasn't very much that I could do despite all of my training and degrees and all those things to rearrange that story allowed me to soften for myself and to kind of forgive myself. For For not being able to be the healer in that scenario.
0: Yeah. And so you were able to exercise that self-compassion you talked about earlier with yourself.
1: And I think that's that's the path forward for, especially for those of us who hold a lot of care and assume responsibility for the well-being of our fellow human. That is the role of being a healer is that you, you don't carry the sole responsibility, but you're joining in the journey in a supportive way, hopefully bringing someone to a deeper level of health. But there are certainly limits to our power to do that for others. And so I think coming to accept the limits that I had actually felt quite freeing. And I'm grateful to have had that experience to just sort of soften rather Mm -hmm. than feel like the pressure to try to have brought about another outcome.
0: Yeah, this is something that I know I train a lot of therapists and virtually all of them have someone in their life like that, that they would desperately like to see heal. And that isn't healing that is stuck. And I know that roughly half of my family members use these tools that we advocate and teach and the other half don't. And sometimes I it's just heartrending to see the people who don't suffer. And you know that if they just did this stuff (laughs) their lives would be very different and of course you can't be obnoxious about it either you can't be like a missionary and like (laughs) <laughs> try to convince them, that, but but it it's very, very difficult to see someone in your family who you love who's suffering, and you know, there are things that could reach them, and they just don't go there.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what you know, people who come to my office or to who come to me as a clinician, they are seeking out those tools, those interventions, that support to try to feel better. And certainly your family members are not seeking that from you, right? They're just next to you at Thanksgiving, whether you <laughs> they want to or not. So I think that's that's a really important distinction for healers to keep in mind that it's such a different role. It's such a different way of interacting. And as much as we would love to be able to take our professional skills and apply them in our personal lives, it just doesn't always work that way. Because we don't have the we don't have the consent, we don't have the invitation.
0: Yeah, it's uh, one of those places you just have to become reconciled to. And again, you just have to accept the way things are and no amount of wanting them different is going <laughs> to make a difference. So it's, you're I feel like a persons writing themselves Cells to to seek healing, to walk to a therapist's office, you just all, all you're wanting for them to get better isn't able to make a difference. But it is it is agony sometimes yeah. to be in that space.
1: And I would say that some of that acceptance actually brings a lot of freedom, right? Mm-hmm. The acceptance of what you can do, what you can offer, and what you can't reasonably offer on behalf of another person. I think that that has helped me to be a better clinician. I don't overreach as much as maybe I used to. Or I'm content with my limits and I certainly wouldn't say that as any kind of silver lining to this experience because that's not how I feel about it but it is certainly a lesson that's offered that I've held with gratitude to feel just more clear about what's possible for me and what's not
0: yes yeah thank you well in our last 30 seconds together there's one question I have to ask you which is I see a typewriter on the desk behind you a manual typewriter and I've got another story behind that
1: (laughs) well let you may not be able to see from where you are is this is actually a typewriter that is made out of legos oh it is it does function you can press the keys and it has sort of the hammer mechanism that a traditional typewriter would have. But my uh, my children gave this Lego typewriter to me for Mother's Day this year, knowing <laughs> that my book would soon be coming out and knowing that they wanted to work on a Lego project with me. So it's pretty precious to me.
0: And something will bring a smile to your face whenever you need to move into that space.
1: I did grow up with a typewriter, an old school typewriter. And that's where I wrote my very first stories.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah. That that old technology carries a resonance with it. Sherry, thank you so much for your wonderful work. Thank you for all the encouragement that you've given the people who've been sharing. Thank you for your words of wisdom for me and others. And I'm pretty grateful for what you're doing. And thank you for sharing it with us so freely today.
1: Thank you so much, Stasen. It's been beautiful to be with you. What a wonderful conversation.
0: Uh, for me too. Thanks again. Until we all get together again for the next episode, thanks again so much for being here. Thanks for giving yourself that space and just fill your life with a passion and love that Sherry's referring to. Thanks again.